That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, September 4, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, what's up? My name is Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi. Today, we're revisiting my July 2018 interview with the greatest living political comedian, John Fugelsang, from Sirius XM Insight 121 and The Stephanie Miller Show. John and I will also be hosting a fundraiser for Carl Frisch on September 28 in Vienna, Virginia. Link for buying tickets in the description. John is also hosting the off-Broadway comedy show Laughing Liberally throughout the month of September. That's LaughingLiberallyNY.com. And if you like what you hear today, please support this show by subscribing at BobSeskaShow.com. Meanwhile, enjoy this chat with John as he circles his block on a rainy summer afternoon in New York City. John, how are you, my friend? Hi, so I'm, uh, I'm on the sidewalk, but I'll be on my block in a moment, and hopefully the noise won't be prohibitive. Is this too loud for you? No, this is good. It's perfect, in fact. You know what? I like the ambiance of you walking down the street in Manhattan. Well, I was trying to get home in time to be in my backyard to do it, although now my backyard is all soaking wet, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, my whole, my, I've had a crazy day already, but... Uh, I'm so honored and thrilled to be doing this with you. Thank you so much. Well, the honor is all mine, John. Seriously, uh, I mean, you're you're one of these guys who I've I've wanted to talk to for so long. As far as just having a personal conversation, I mean, we talk about politics, and and we'll get into that a little bit here on the uh, on the interview. But I, you know, I want to talk to you about you. I mean, that's the that's the main okay. thing. I want to know all about. John Fugel saying, um, and first of all, I mean, the question I usually ask just about anyone who appears on my show for the first time is the standard question that you ask someone else in a foxhole with you, you know, on the Magano line or something like that. How are you holding up? How are you doing in all of this? <laughs> Let me ask you my first question I ask in every podcast. So we're taping this now. We're taping now. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we are rolling. <laughs> Great. I'm holding up okay, you know. Uh, I, I, I really, uh, being able to manage life in the time of Silvio Berlusconi ovary has been a challenge for a lot of people, but from the very beginning, I knew that a big part of my life was going to be talking myself and talking other people off a ledge on a regular basis. And yeah. I, I got to be honest, you know, I mean, to a large extent, it's, 
it's just the same struggle we've always been in. It's just turned up to 11 and more people care now. Yeah. Um, the night that he was elected uh, was a very surreal night for everyone, mm. but I, I had the most surreal night. I was with a bunch of comedians doing a live special on Sirius XM, and by 10 p.m., they were all despondently leaving. We were trying to get the, <laughs> the hip-hop critic from, yeah. from Daily Beast to read our sketches with us on the air. <laughs> and then I had to go do uh, – I, I did uh, an appearance all night that I had naively agreed to on uh, Good, Good Morning Britain. Yeah, hosted by Pierce Morgan, who won Celebrity Apprentice, despite <laughs> being neither of those two things. And, um, you, you know, I, I knew that it was going to be a great blow to our national psyche, but mm -hmm. I don't really believe there's any absolute valued logic to experiences. And every positive advancement in civil rights has always led to a setback. Yeah. But every negative experience has in some ways led to positive outcomes. And I knew that as awful as it will be, a lot of good would come from it eventually. Mm -hmm. And that was going to have to be something I focused on. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm doing okay. I mean, I talk to people who like, say they're quitting Twitter and, you know, they can't stand the homophobia and the misogyny and the racism and the sexism and the meanness. And I'm like, well, that's what I don't like about America, but I'm not leaving America. So why yeah. are you leaving Twitter? Just unplug for a bit. You know, mm -hmm. like I, I tell everybody, you know, you, the internet has been really good, but one of the, the, the and the internet gets a lot of negative credit. But one thing that we don't talk about is that I, I'm starting to think the internet really killed hobbies. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I've been telling everybody like, it's really important to have a life outside of this and unplug because people are burning out like, like in a bad job or a bad relationship where oh, yeah. what my wife once called the never ending shittiness of everything <laughs> where, uh, that's a great way to put it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I'm telling people like, it's more important than ever to unplug, to read good books, read novels, mm -hmm. see theater, see good films, go to concerts, have good sex, Yep. Uh, you know, like see good friends. Don't go drinking with pals. Like see good friends and and give yourself, you know, self care in ways you hadn't given yourself care yourself self care. That's a long winded answer of saying it's it's hard. Yeah. But um. Well, I mean, how do you personally uh, deal with it, John? I know you do a lot of traveling. I mean, easily. I know you you've got a Kardashian joke for this, but you are easily the hardest working man in political comedy. I have never seen someone who <laughs> who has more gigs lined up, who is constantly working. I mean, do you find in that process that you're able to take yourself out of these daily events, the daily fire hose of news, as I'm sometimes calling it. Uh, do you find that that that's helpful or do you find that that is actually digging in deeper? Like you're, you're that guy, you're that old salt in the trenches. who's just, who's just not going to oh, leave. You, you find well, that helps? that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, it's strange, Bob, because I, I was, I was raising a toddler at the same time my country was electing one. <laughs> and um, that's made it interesting. There's been a lot of parallels there. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm on Twitter and I'm contorting my face into a grimace of rage, my, my kindergartner will say, stop being angry. And he's always right. So, you know, I sort of have had this uh, alarm system where I'm not allowed to lose my mind over it. I, I'm, I'm, when the election was happening, I was going through 
well, d- during the campaign of two summers ago, I was going through a lot of drama. Mm. Uh, my mother was in hospice. Um, I was dealing with a lot of different troubles. Uh, and, and it just sort of seemed that like, that this guy was the, the, the punishment to everybody of good faith who's tried to be a good person their whole life. And I'm not going to pull any punches on it. I mean, this was America's IQ test and you know, we failed and it was a moral IQ test. Yeah. I mean, there were 62 million Americans who, who hated goodness. I mean, who hated Hillary Clinton more than they liked goodness. And, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm not one of these people that, that turns a blind eye to the fact that racism and grabbing women by the pussy and lying and misogyny and, and incredible corruption was not a deal breaker for 62 million people. But to a large extent, and you might agree, this is just the same struggle we've always had. Yeah. I mean, if you sign on to be a person with empathy and to care about people you're never going to meet and to look for solutions that work rather than just, you know, selfish tribalism, uh, that struggle never ends. Yeah. You know, I mean, G- Jesus said the poor will always be with you. Mm-hmm. There's two ways of viewing that. Uh, people with empathy say that means the struggle to help the less fortunate never ends. And smug right-wingers say uh, that means the government shouldn't do anything because the poor will always be with you. Uh, to me, it's like I- I've had to tell people, you know, the, maybe the biggest danger of Trump is that Trump is just the Death Star. Yeah. After he's gone... Uh, the Sith are still going to be controlling the galaxy. And right. I hope that all the people who get so engaged right now will stay engaged once the Death Star is blown up, because there's going to be a lot of sequels. I mean, d- does America recover from this, John? I mean, is is Trumpism becoming now tr- Trump or not? Because eventually Trump's going to die. I mean, just from natural, whatever. I mean, for whatever reason. There's not, not yeah. an assassination yeah. fantasy or anything. I'm just being realistic. Eventually Trump is no longer going to be around. Does Trumpism no, endure no. beyond the Trump presidency? Are we looking at a new state of things where it becomes more of an ongoing shovel fight about owning or trolling the other side than it is a, a discussion about policy as if it were really, I mean, policy was always second to the shovel fight, but now it's almost entirely the shovel fight. Do you see that ever? Do you see the pendulum ever swinging back the other way? Well, I think the shovel fight is for stupid people uh, who want to win <laughs> and who have this, you know, illusion that you can somehow win by owning libs. I mean, yeah. At this point, that's all conservatism is. I think it's it's owning libs, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's feeling like you're winning. I mean, it's not family values. It's not Christianity. It's not fiscal responsibility. Yeah. It's not uh, pride in American sovereignty. Um, all those things are gone. It's really just tribalism. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think the biggest danger we have is the the great drug addiction which is dopamine in our brains and that we as a society and, and Dr. Robert Lustig wrote a great book about this uh, called the hacking of the American mind, but mm-hmm. that we, we have confused pleasure with happiness. Yeah. And so we mistake that brief little euphoric dopamine squirt in our brains for true happiness when it's just pleasure. And it's why we like porn more than love. It's why we like fighting more than making friends. Yeah. Uh, the illusion of winning is a drug that's very destructive, much more so than the opiate crisis. America will need a Truth and Reconciliation Committee when this is all done. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's going to have to be a lot of reckoning, and I don't think that's ever going to happen. You know, if we, we let Iran-Contra go as a culture, we let lying America into a war that killed a million Iraqis and 5,000 troops, we, we, we let that go. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've long had a hope that... Um, 
once we're an ex-empire, we'll go back to just being a republic. Yeah. And just being another country, I think England's a lot more likable now that they're not trying to rule the world anymore. Mm. And I have no problem letting uh, China and Russia rule the world for a while <laughs> while we regenerate. But, yeah. you know, every, every advancement, there's always been a setback, right? Like yeah. we ended slavery and then you got Jim Crow. So then we had the civil rights movement, but then we had the drug war and the Southern strategy. Mm-hmm. So then we had the first black president and then we have this racist, illiterate clown. <laughs> uh, it, it all fits into a larger pattern for me. And, you know, I don't know if there's going to be a happy ending to this. Um, we, we can kid ourselves that there is, but, you know, life's not supposed to be happy. <laughs> right. It's not about happiness. And, 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 uh, and all the world's religions tell us this, but all the world's TV shows tell us otherwise. <laughs> so I, I think that we're all part of a great struggle, and you can either, mm-hmm. you know, Play dumb, get numb, or bang the drum, and I'm inspired by people like you, Bob, who who do what you do, and and other people. I mean, no, who uh, who put themselves on the line, who who put their reputations and their dignity on the line, who get out there and fight for those who will uh, who we don't even know. Um, I, I, I have everything you want to show me that's bad. It's weird. Like, I'm not an optimist, but I am mm-hmm. a recovering cynic because I think cynicism is a form of privilege. Mm-hmm lazy and it's uh it's unhealthy and having a child at the same time that both my parents were dying uh has forced me to reset a lot of my own uh you, you know factory settings and and i, I just kind of feel like I, I well i'll put it this way when i when i was a teenager i moved to new york city at the height of the aids crisis and i saw people dying uh, a president who waited till 20,000 Americans were dead before he even na- said the name of the disease out loud. 20,000 Americans had to die before Reagan said the word AIDS. Yep. yep. I saw people come out of the closet. I saw people stop waiting for their rights and demand their rights. I saw straight allies show up. I saw people not being afraid of losing their jobs anymore and coming out. Um, people took to the streets. As a Catholic teenager, I was very uncomfortable by a lot of the protests ACT UP was doing. And then I realized that's what those protests were designed to do, make comfortable white Christians like me uncomfortable. And, and what happened because of it? We saw the swiftest advancement of civil rights for any oppressed minority group in the history of the world. Um, and gay people are an oppressed minority within every minority. Yeah, well, and you, within well, one generation, you see a sitting American president endorsing marriage equality during his reelection campaign, like which wouldn't have been thinkable in the 90s. Right. And, and all, all that progress. I mean, you look at how far LGBT people have come in the society oh my and God, how yeah. much goodness there was in society. And it all happened because of this terrible, horrible plague. So that's why I believe in the American dream. And mm-hmm. it sounds very Pollyanna-ish, but I'm telling you, man, cynicism is, is uh, that's a luxury I can't afford yeah. Yeah. Now, I would not suggest ever that you have a cynical approach to either comedy or political commentary or whatever. But I do recognize the fact that you have something that's uh, really admirable in common with Aaron Sorkin. You have an ability that that he also has, which is to create these salient, almost one line remarks that cut through an issue that cut through bullshit. And uh, you. do you find that uh, that it's even more difficult now to 
rise to that level when the bullshit that you're cutting through is so thick and people are just doing things out of spite rather than some sort of substantive latching on to an issue or a policy proposal or an idea. Is that more Um, difficult now than it has been in the past? That's a good question, Mr. Seska. You're you're the smartest guy. Uh, (laughs) No. Well, yes and and no. Um, It's easier in a way because the lies are so transparent. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's one thing to lie and say that cutting taxes for the wealthy creates jobs. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I can tack on in Asia to that, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's one thing to like, you know, try to have these pithy little one-liners. And I mean, I'm inspired by people who tell the truth cleverly and succinctly from Jesus to George Carlin. I mean, yeah. you know, my, my guiding principle is Billy Wilder, who said, if you're going to tell people the truth, make it funny or they'll kill you. <laughs> but um, increasingly, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind, to tell you the truth. Uh, I'm not trying to um, – well, that's not true. I, 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 I am trying. I've begun a hashtag campaign of very sincere questions for Trump defenders, and I'm numbering them all. Yeah, right. That's, uh, it. that's it's, exactly, it's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Defenders. Yeah. Yeah, because that's because I uh, – that is about sowing seeds of doubt, like asking very simple questions that they have to answer, and usually they can't. But generally, I've, here's what I found. Um, people waste a lot of time arguing in a vacuum. You know, I, mm. I see I see famous people I admire having these like two hour flame wars on Twitter <laughs> with some Alabama troll that has 12 followers. And right. I'm, I'm, I'm just like, dude, girls are watching. What are you doing? Um, to me, it's, it's to me, it's, it's about it's really about um, can you sway the bystanders? Mm hmm. Like, I don't see any point in having a debate with a stranger who's hostile right. and, and malicious mm. uh, unless there are witnesses, unless there's an audience. Yeah. I, I won't do it one-on-one. Once I, I try, I've tried to do it, and it just leads to, you know, you being frustrated because you're literally arguing with someone who is quite simply beyond reason. Yeah. This is tribalism. This is, like, this is like fundamentalist religion, and facts do not matter. And I learned this growing up in the kind of church I grew up with, with the kind of parents I grew up with. Yeah. We're very, very religious, but also very, very iconoclastic in many ways. Um, I mean, they weren't just for your, your parents. Minds. I want to change, change their kids' minds, and I want to sway all the bystanders. Yeah. So, like, I tell people, don't, don't have these arguments in a vacuum. Do it with people watching, and go there with facts and empathy, and don't let yourself hate the other person, because... Mm. If, if, if you hate them back, they win. That's all they have to do is make you hate them back. And that's the, that's the game they're playing. Yeah. Uh, and if you can't convert someone, don't waste your time trying to. Just mm-hmm. try to entertain your audience by responding to some hate or ignorance with something clever and entertaining because that will give uh, reinforcement and, and hopefully some, some, uh, some strength to the people on your side. And again, you make them look silly and you'll sway the bystanders. In many ways, the bad guys here aren't the one-third of us that are haters. The bad guys here are the one-third of us that check out and don't care. Yeah. And my biggest fear is that we become like Nazi Germany, where one-third of us would kill one-third of us while one-third of us watched. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you said your, your parents were religious. That's actually kind of understating. I mean, they were both former clergy, am I right? Yes, yeah. My mother was a nun uh, for 16 years yeah. and was a nurse. The convent put her through nursing school and sent her off to work in Malawi, Africa with wow. uh, lepers and in a jungle hospital. And my father was a Franciscan, a uh, Franciscan brother who taught history to Catholic boys in Brooklyn. But, you know, they were 
they were iconoclastic in their way. I mean, my parents, you know, were never big fans of popes. My dad, but our holy trinity in my house was Jesus, Gandhi, Dr. King. Jesus, Gandhi, Dr. King. Wow. Uh, my parents never made us go to confession or stuff like that. We said grace at every meal. We said prayers. We went to church on every holy day. But they didn't kiss the ring. My parents would never call themselves pro-choice, but they would also never vote for an anti-abortion rights politician. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my dad's the one who gave me my copy of Autobiography of Malcolm X. And to me, that made sense on a religious level. And, and as I got older, uh, I, I used to find it confusing. I was the one kid whose parents voted against Reagan. <laughs> and I was also the most Christian kid. Yeah. And I thought, why don't, why don't I fit in with anybody? I'm too Christian for the hip kids, and I'm too liberal for the Christians. And it made no sense until I got older and realized it makes perfect sense if you're not going to be growing up as part of a herd. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't be a true Christian and not fight for the marginalized and not be liberal. You know, Jesus's whole mission, and this is is what I get from my parents, you know, it wasn't like shame and sin and fire and brimstone. My dad was the old guy after church who would stand outside and talk to the priest and debate about what is this with all the hell talk? Why don't you talk about love? That's what Christianity is. Why aren't you talking about love and forgiveness and <laughs> compassion? Like consistently throughout the, the, the Gospels, right? Jesus is the guy who stands up for whoever everybody hates. Yeah. Whoever's the most marginalized. <laughs> I mean, the lepers, the prostitutes, the poorest people, even the tax collectors, even, even the Roman centurion. Uh, who's occupying the Holy Land. Um, and that was to heal his gay lover. That's one of my favorite Bible stories. Right. But uh, yeah. you look at this, the modern Christians, and, and I'm, I mean, like, I don't, I don't call them Christians. I call them evangelical supremacists. <laughs> it's all about shit, shitting on the marginalized, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's Muslims, immigrants, people seeking asylum and refugees, transgender kids who want to use a bathroom, yeah. people struggling at the margins of society economically. It's the complete opposite of Christianity. Yeah. And, and, once you understand that, it doesn't seem crazy. It all makes a lot of sense. And you're either on the side of Jesus getting crucified or you're on the side of the Pharisees being a smug brick. Yeah. I mean, did you find that uh, living with parents who uh, were former clergy, do you, do you find a lot of your views on uh, – I, I mean, I, I think your overall take, especially on the New Testament, is – unique and I, I it's strange to say it that way because it shouldn't be a unique position because you actually believe what's what's written about Jesus in the Bible rather than some sort of bastardization of that is that is that the kind of how you look at it like a difference between actually seeing what Jesus said and the bastardization of that that tends to be the the divide when it comes to talking about religion is that is that the source of it in your estimation? That's a really good question. I mean, yeah. I'm not a biblical literalist, right? Like, yeah. I-, I can accept that Jesus was uh, the greatest Jewish magician pre-Houdini, sure. Yeah. But, like, I can't prove, you know, miracles and Lazarus and re- resurrection from the dead. And, and it-, it took me a long time to realize that stuff doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, like, Jesus was a guy who, who told the truth in parable and metaphor. And yet his followers are incapable of reading the Bible as parable and metaphor. Yeah. And when I realized finally that like, be, and I don't know if I'm a Christian at all, but uh, but when I realized that, to me, being a being a Christian was not about believing unprovable miracles. Mm-hmm. That being a and, and there's a lot of people that would be very angry at me for saying this, but being a Christian to me was following the teachings of this great ambassador to love yeah. and forgiveness, 
And the other stuff is ultimately spiritually insignificant. Now, maybe I'm wrong and God will send me to burn in hell. But, um, you know, when I look at these people fighting over creationism, like, is there anything more spiritually insignificant than a talking snake? Believing in that means anything? (laughs) To me, it's like, and this is how they manipulate people. And it's how religion, I'm not talking about faith, but how religion has always been used to manipulate. I mean, you, they have figured out a way in the 70s and 80s to get Christians to reject everything Jesus talked about by focusing on abortion, mm-hmm. which Jesus never talked about and which the Bible is not against. And oh. it's a racket, and it works, and it is mind control. Oh, yeah. we In fact, we've talked about this on your show, where something like same-sex marriage was never even conceived of during the ancient times, much less written about or, or forbidden in the Bible. Yeah, and yet Jesus saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, kind of covers that pretty neatly. I mean, yeah. a lot of these so-called Christians want to forget the fact that Jesus replaced the Ten Commandments with two. Right. Uh, he really made it simple for people who have a hard time counting. Yeah, and, and I, you know, going back to miracles, as you were saying earlier, uh, I always found that after the miracles, Jesus should have said, well, now that I've got your attention, let, let me teach you some things. Uh, that's I, that's I, exactly... I was, I always feel like the miracles are like... like, You know why the toughest job of all time? Uh, Jesus' manager. Can you imagine (laughs) Jesus' manager? Jesus Christ! These people, you got 20,000 people out here standing in sand. They don't want to hear you talk about love. They want to see you heal a blind guy. They came for the magic trick, Jesus. You want to talk about love? Go ahead. You talk about love, and you'll have a great radio show on Pacifica, and 12 people will listen, and you'll be really proud of it. Maybe you'll get a podcast. These people in the audience want the magic trick. Jesus Christ! Maybe you'll get a podcast. Oh, my God. That is unbelievable. When did you discover that you could make people laugh? When, at what point in your life did you say, oh, my God, this is a, this is a superpower that I have? When did you uh, learn that? I don't know. It was actually hard for me because, uh, number one, I will admit I haven't felt funny in a while. I, I, hmm. I don't think it's because of Trump so much. I feel funny on stage. Yeah. But a lot of it is uh, I'm just exhausted all the time having a kid and – you know, having having a child while you're doing hospice for two parents is, uh, you know, something yeah. I don't generally recommend. No. But um, I, really growing up was weird because uh, all my friends were funnier than me and my brothers were funnier than me. Uh, it wasn't until I was working a job at NYU and um, and I began just like having time to talk to young people all day. Uh, right out of college, I ran a dorm and had an office job nine to five. And I was just always in an office with young people. And I just the only way I could get through it was to crack jokes and you know, develop routines. And that's how I got up the guts to do my first open mic night. So um, it's, it's, I I don't know. I mean, it's a hard question because I think I've always been around people who were a lot funnier than me who inspired me. And, uh, and, and comedy was always, you know, George Carlin changed my life. The first time I saw George Carlin, Mm -hmm. I knew that's what I wanted to do. It, It wasn't from the TV specials. It was the first time I saw him live, which was on the Jan in New York tour, which I consider to be his, his most important album. And that's the album he always said where he changed from being a comedian to being an essayist. And uh, if you listen to his stuff from 1990 onward, it is light years beyond the stuff that made him famous for the first 20 years of his career. Oh, my God, yeah. It's it's 1990 post-1990 Carlin that made me want to be a comic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And would you suggest that uh, he's maybe your biggest influence there, or uh, have there been other comics? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, did you grow up with any comics that uh, you you really admired, even before deciding to uh, try that first open mic? 
Oh yeah. I mean, so many, God, I mean, you know, it's the same people that everyone likes. I mean, Richard Pryor and, uh, and Bill Hicks, um, Bill Cosby is Mm -hmm. the, uh, is, is the funniest comedian I've ever seen live. I saw him twice when I was growing (laughs) up and, um, I could, I, I, I've never seen a comedian who could do what he did. We now know of course that he had an incredible shadow side as many, uh, oh, geniuses yeah. do, and uh, well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, still, I, I love, I, I love Elaine Boozler. Elaine Boozler was a huge influence on me when I was starting out. Judy mm-hmm. Gold was a huge influence on me when I was starting out. Just people who, 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 and I'm not an observational comic. I've always wanted to be, because I admire the people who do it so well. I'm more the person who just like finds some injustice and wants to fight it, and I find a dick joke to tack onto my preachiness. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So when you first uh, tried that first open mic night, uh, first of all, what were you studying at the time? I mean, what was your career path at that point in time? And when you uh, when you finally did step up on stage, how did it go? Did you uh, did you bomb or did you kill or was it? Uh, man, oh, did, you, did you get that? Bug? No one's did ever you... asked me this question. Oh, my God. I've never been asked this before. Wow. Uh, I, I well, I'll tell you, I. I started to, um, uh, I always wanted to do an open mic and I was working mm. at NYU. I was in Greenwich Village. I lived around the corner from the Boston Comedy Club, and I was too terrified to ever do it. <laughs> so finally, I, I chose an open mic night Monday, and I did something that I couldn't back out of. I invited everybody I knew to come. And so, like, 25 people came to watch me do my first stand-up open mic. Wow. And I'm talking like my aunt from Jersey came in. Like, <laughs> there were so many people. And, and uh, so I couldn't back out. And I had a lot of material planned for my seven minutes of open mic time. Mm-hmm. But what happened was it, the, the club realized that I was the open micer who had the entire audience there. I mean, no one in the history of comedy has ever brought 20 people to an open mic before. It's never <laughs> happened. It's the dumbest thing I've ever done. And so when the club realized that all the audience was there because of me, they kept pushing my spot back later and later into the night. Oh, my God. So comedians could get up and play to a full audience. So, like, so I'm telling you, Dave Attell played that night. Chappelle played that night. Holy Gaffigan shit. played that night. Wally Collins played that night. And the whole time I'm sitting there, like, figuring out how the business works, being like, wait a second, you told me I'd be going up by 8.30, and now it's 10. <laughs> so, you know, like, all my family, everyone's there checking their watches, wanting to leave, and it's a, it's a Monday. Yeah. Um, and I realized, like, okay, I was really naive, and I'm being taken advantage of at my very first gig. <laughs> so when they finally called me up, I didn't give a shit, and I went on stage, and I did 20 minutes. Because even though it was my first time ever doing stand-up, I was like, fuck you all. This crowd came here for me. These are my friends and you guys have a good racket going. Nice. And I don't care if you ban me from your future open mics, but I've been waiting all night for this. I've earned my 20. <laughs> so my first open mic night, I abused it and did 20 minutes instead of seven. And that was it. That changed my life. And that was, uh, that was like discovering Shakespeare for me. Like it was, you have moments in life where your world goes from black and white to color. And yeah. that was one of them. So what, what was your, <laughs> what was your act like at that point? I mean, was it, uh, was it political? Was it a mix of, uh, observational and political? I mean, what were you doing? Uh, what did you have planned? Uh, it was, wasn't, wasn't political at all. I, I didn't really write jokes. I already had routines that I've yeah. been working on. So like I did a routine about, um, about, uh, the sensitive guys who, uh, are just as horny as normal guys, but act like these yoga pimps to, to seduce women. Uh, in a bit where I picked out a girl in the front row and began asking her a series of bizarre questions and, uh, you know, like weird crowd work. Yeah. Um, I, did a, I did a little uh, bit that I still do now and then that I've rewritten over the years. Uh, the very first Shakespearean rap 
play called The Taming of the Ho. Um, I did a lot of, I did like five bits and, uh, and I milked it and I didn't care. Like they gave me the light and I did 10 minutes more. My first time I was a belligerent dick on stage ever. <laughs> I know what happened afterwards. Did they give you a lot of shit? Did they not invite you back? Is it get it? Get no, the they fuck asked, out of here. They, they, within two months, the owner of the club was offering to manage me. They had me back right oh, away. Great. Great. So it went well is what you're saying. Uh, I don't know if it went well. I mean, I think it went well. It's a good story. Uh, we'll see how the career pans out, you know, because I've had periods in my life where I've gone away from stand-up, where I, where I haven't done stand-up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it was hard for me for a long time because, um, you know, like on the one hand, I, I've had incredible depression issues uh, with, that took me out of the game really? for years at a time that we can talk about whenever. But I also had... Um, you know, jobs that took me away from it. I, I wanted to be an actor and a comedian, but I have this certain bland white weatherman look that <laughs> led me to be offered all these game show hosts and reality show host jobs. And uh, so, so I went through a lot of identity crises because all the work I was being offered was not the kind of work I had wanted to do in my heart. Yeah. So, um, and, and there were times when, like, when I was younger where I believed that, like, like I took a job as a DJ for VH1 because it got me out of running a dorm, you know, like it was a, <laughs> that was like, I didn't care what happened. It was a six month deal. We'll see what happens. Yeah. And, and I, that's, I, I mean, you're a college job. John Fugelsang's college job was being a VJ on VH1. That, that's, that's pretty, yeah, impre- yeah. that's really impressive. Well, well, it was, but, but like, you know, America's funniest home videos was something that when they asked me to do it, I, mm-hmm. I refused to go to the audition. Yeah. I thought it was a joke that they wanted me for that show. And, and my agents kept pressuring me to do it. And I said, I'm doing a shoot in Washington Square Park. I can't come. And they, they literally called and said, look, the casting director is flying back to L.A. She's taking a later flight just to see you. And I was like, oh, God. So I went there out of Catholic shame. And, <laughs> you know, I wound up getting the job. And I never thought it would be right for me. Mm-hmm. And my agents kept saying, oh, no, it'll lead to all kinds of work. You'll be doing Merchant Ivory films in no time if you introduce videos with Daisy Fuentes. And, <laughs> you know, young me believed it. And. It was a nice bunch of people, uh, and they paid me really well. But I, I, I always knew that it was like I was wearing somebody else's clothes. Yeah. And uh, so over the years, I, I've turned down more work than I've taken. And very often I've taken, like, these hosting jobs and, and then realized more often than not that in television, you know, you know this, they'll, they'll sell you a bill of goods. And mm-hmm. that's why now I'm, I'm, you know, excited because I'm out pitching my own shows and, and I have people who want to – develop with me and and uh i no longer really feel this pressure to um try to conform to what somebody else wants because i've never been good at that i, I have a look and it's like greg brady with johnny bravo you know you <laughs> fit the suit and uh i was as tall as daisy fuentes and mm. i could ad lib um but i wasn't you know I, i've had a lot of times where i've had to say i'm not the droid you're looking for so yeah. it's uh but i also knew when i started out that i wanted I knew I was never going to be Carlin or Daniel Day-Lewis, and I knew that I wanted to have uh, a very diverse career and do a lot of different things and challenge myself and, and, and learn a lot of different things. So I have had a really schizophrenic resume from being murdered on CSI to, you know, doing a, an epic film about the American dream on the road for PBS to playing for the troops overseas mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, whatever else I've done. I mean, uh, it's, it's to, to being... Um, to, to, to debating Jerry Falwell and, and David Duke on Bill Marshall. Like, I, I know that when I'm old, I'm going to have a lot of stories. 
Yeah, I mean, you there, there's a maxim in comedy, John, that that good-looking people aren't funny, and you're clearly breaking that maxim all to shreds, right? Have you ever found that the fact that you're not a bad-looking man has hurt you as far as stand-up goes, as far as comedy goes? Maybe not specifically in terms of hosting jobs, but in terms of being taken seriously as a comic. Do you find that that, that has been a problem? And I know your answer is probably going to be extremely modest, but 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 humor me. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, well, it's, it's both. It's both, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, it really is both. Uh, uh, I never thought I was a good-looking person. <laughs> And uh, I, I was never taught I was a good-looking person. And my peer group I grew up with made it very clear that I was not a good-looking person. That's bizarre. I was also somebody who, um, for all of my parents' virtues and progressiveness, um, I, I grew up with a lot of shame in the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. Me too. So I was the kind of person who grew up thinking that um, self-esteem and conceit were the same things. Yeah. And that, and I also grew up thinking that humility and self-loathing were the same things, and that the more I despised myself and criticized myself and put myself down, the more God would find favor with me because I wasn't stuck up. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not healthy, and that's, I think, what the convent programmed into my mother. She called it a cult before she died. And so um, that's a long-winded way of saying that I really, really didn't view it that way for a number of years. But yeah, there were things like I used to do a very, a very, very self-deprecating act that was very true to my heart. And I had a couple mm. of comics I really respected take me aside and say, you know, you're not enough of a character actor looking guy to do that kind of material. I always thought because I was really pale and skinny and, you know, not rugged like Mr. Bob Seska that, that I could <laughs> do that kind of Woody Allen stick. And uh, it was, I had to drop it eventually, even though I didn't feel it. And so I learned how to fake it till you make it uh, on a, in a very public way. Mm. But, I mean, that's rubbish. There's tons of really good – I mean, Dane Cook is a funny comic, whether you like his material or not. He's oh, a yeah. good-looking guy. There's mm -hmm. tons of gorgeous female stand-up comics. And, that you know, funny is funny. And, and, uh, and, again, people are drawn to confidence. That's what I've learned. Um, and performers and, and the one thing that everyone's attracted to, gay, straight, young, old, is, is sexual confidence. There's a reason why so many women thought James Gandolfini was hot. Yeah. So confidence, confidence can be a really good thing. Look, Donald Trump shows how, how incredibly powerful, to a dangerous extent, <laughs> confidence can be. Yeah. And we all know the confident, no-talent douchebags who are really successful and the wonderful, kind-hearted, talented people who don't believe in themselves, mm -hmm. and, and they're still stuck. So I think that's a process we all go through in life, and we, we have to grow into it. But uh, – uh, yeah, and also having a guy like Bob Seska tell you you're good looking is like, you know, having Michael Jordan compliment your jump shot is crazy. So thank you, well, Bob you Seska, know. folks listening. I mean, like you guys who are listening to this, you you read Bob Seska, and maybe you've seen him on the internet and on TV, but you don't really understand the pheromones that squirt from the every pore of Bob Seska's body until you're in the presence of this man. He's the guy who makes everyone else feel like a before picture. So this entire conversation is a bit disingenuous. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you, too. I want to go back. You mentioned uh, suffering from depression. Is that something that's, uh, that's sort of plagued you your entire life? We talk about that. But strangely enough, we talk about that on this show quite a bit. But it's still, you know, one thing we were talking about is how even the word depression tends to downplay the severity of the problem. Is there like the uh, the squishy underbelly uh, just under the surface that uh, that a lot of I think a lot of comics tend to have? Yes. Mm. Um, 
I don't have supreme confidence at all, uh, but I, uh, I know that if you don't project it when the moment matters, uh, you're not going to get where you want to get. Yeah. And uh, we talk about this a lot on my Sirius XM show, and I mean a lot, and I have a lot of authors and doctors and scientists on to talk about it. Um, yeah, depression, I agree. Sometimes it doesn't seem like the word really does it justice. I view the word depression sometimes like I view the word bully, mm-hmm. uh, an archaic, archie comics term that, like, I hate the term bullying so much because it's a word designed to make you not take a brutal problem seriously. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, like, like I hear bully, I think Butch and Wine from Little Rascals, you know, like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's peer abuse, you know, it's, it's harassment, it's cruelty. We don't, we, we use these words that are, I think are outdated. And here's what I'll say. Depression is a disease, mm-hmm. but negativity is a habit. Interesting. And sometimes you can spend years of your life trying to figure out what is what and which of those two things is what you're feeling. Um, I, I, when I lived in Los Angeles, I, uh, I will say the best thing about America's Funniest Home Videos uh, for me was that it got me into therapy. And um, I don't believe in therapy. I believe in finding the right therapist for you. Mm-hmm. And if you've tried therapy and it didn't work and you had some cold fish there just letting you talk and not saying anything, don't give up Yeah, because it can still work for you. And, and maybe it's different kinds of therapies that will work for you. Um, and to me, I think negativity is as, is as big a problem as depression. Um, and I think both conditions are often misdiagnosed and not taken seriously enough. And I was on every kind of, uh, for years when I lived in California, I was on every kind of drug you can imagine. Wow. And there were years where I just kind of dropped off the radar of, of the industry and my life and my friends. And um, I had long stretches where I really didn't leave the house much when I lived out by the, hmm. by the beach. And, uh, and I understand it. And I know that it is something that if you don't resist, uh, and look, here's the problem with talking about depression. Anytime you talk about depression from your own point of view, there's going to be somebody out there who feels that you're making a mockery of their experience. So I'm loath to talk about uh, about it too much. Really, that's um, not that's uh, yes, my experience. I, I haven't seen that. Actually, that's something that I, I've never oh. witnessed. Where usually people are, are like, "Oh my God, yeah, exactly that, exactly where you're like." Patton Oswalt makes depression a big, a, a major, major part of his act, and I think usually yeah, from yeah. what I've seen, and, everyone goes, uh, "Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right." Show, too. Yeah. yeah. I, well, here's the thing, but if I, say, if I say it's something you have to fight and resist, there's going to be someone who's offended, and mm-hmm. I know this from experience, and say it's easy to say, fight it. You know, yeah. you know, cheer. It's, like, it's, like, it's a very hot topic in my experience. And, and also, our, let's be honest, whether you're liberal or conservative, we have a shared national addiction, and it's umbrage. <laughs> uh, we love being offended. Everyone <laughs> yeah. of every political background loves being outraged and having their umbrage gasm mm-hmm. over uh, uh, any kind of perceived slight. So I don't mean to be disrespectful to anybody who's struggling with this disease. We don't take depression seriously. And in many ways, I think depression, I'll just say this, I think very often on a societal level and on a personal level, sometimes depression's not the problem. It's the symptom of the greater problem. And I have come to believe that sometimes for some people, depression can be your soul's way of telling you that you are not living authentically and that you are not living the life you're supposed to lead. And a lot of times we're stuck and we're trapped and depression can be like a gigantic magnet and you're a tiny robot and and you're stuck. 
and it's hard to move and get off of it. And eventually a lot of us decide, you know what, the devil you know beats the devil you don't, and I'll stay here in this zone. Yeah. Um, I spent many years on many different drugs for depression, and ultimately I, I stopped and I realized that, because um, nothing, nothing worked for me for many years, and I realized, and I had dramatic experiences trying to get off antidepressants as well, mm-hmm. and I, I realized that I was going to be one of those people who had to learn to live with the highs and the lows. Yeah. And, did, um, and did, I do. Did you find you were also self-medicating on top of the uh, prescription depression meds? Yes. Yeah. And, and do, do you want to? Are, are you, can you be more specific? Uh, was there? I mean, you know, if you're uncomfortable with that, I completely, I completely get it. But I mean, is it? Uh, you want to? You want a list of all the narcotics I ever took? Uh, sure. You know, I mean, it's it, it, it's it's vast. Uh, it's enough to. <laughs> I used to say it was enough to ever keep me from being president, but now the bar's been lowered uh, a lot. <laughs> Lace Garrett could be president at this point. Um, I, you know, here's the thing. I I, I kind of feel like. As a culture, and this will offend people, but I kind of feel like we sh- maybe doctors shouldn't prescribe antidepressants until mm-hmm. someone's proved that they've journaled every morning for three pages and yeah. broken a sweat doing cardio for 45 minutes three times a week. Yeah. Like there's baseline, there's baseline things that we can do uh, that we don't want to do. Um, and I'm not saying those will cure depression, but I'm saying that uh, those are the sort of things that can make other things that that can ameliorate other things. And I do think that depression is something we don't understand. And that's why it's so often misdiagnosed. And I think that antidepressants really, really help a lot of people. And that's why they're good. And for a lot of people, they just don't work. And you can be like me and spend years, you know, trying legal, taxable, respectable mood altering drugs Mm -hmm. uh, over and over again. But also the same thing with narcotics eventually, you know, I mean, every crutch becomes an affliction. Yeah. Every crutch will become your affliction, uh, including being in love with someone, including being obsessed with your kids, including being obsessed with your job, uh, being obsessed with your, your hobbies, your sports team. I mean, every, everything you use to get through life, do what you got to do, but mm-hmm. just be mindful that eventually, whether it's alcohol, uh, whether it's weed, whether it's other stuff, uh, you'll hit a time when the crutch is what's hurting you. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, I know we could probably spend hours talking about this. I was married to someone who was not only a borderline personality, which is the Livia Soprano uh, mental illness, which that, that was fun, yeah. uh, but, but she was also uh, deeply depressed. I mean, she suffered from this disease. And, uh, and so I've got to, I mean, while I've never personally suffered from this, I have a, you know, a, a really deep sympathy for the, the problem and just the crisis of merely treating it is almost insurmountable, much less the actual disease itself. Um, you know, I, well, I, to- I, I mean, that maybe that's because she was married to you, but also <laughs> um, keep in mind, you also, Mr. Seska, are, are I think, a model for showing how uh, physical fitness can be good for one's <laughs> emotional demeanor <laughs> yeah well thank you for saying that i wish i was as fit as you seem to be implying but you know um i, I want to go back to umbridge uh because there's something that i, I think we agree about uh, among many other things but and it's it's getting to the point where i am uh i'm i'm becoming really discouraged i always considered myself someone who was uh, uh respectful of political correctness i try to use the proper nomenclature when it comes to uh, 
referring to certain groups. I never have any have had any problem uh, with doing that and and offering that up as almost like a cost free way of just being agreeable and just being a member of society. But now we're at this point where there's this social media police and this PC culture, especially on Twitter. I mean, James Gunn, uh, the director of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, uh, has just uh, been disgraced and, and and driven off the stage. He was fired from the, the latest uh, iteration of that movie series. And uh, and it just seems to be happening more and more often. I was having a conversation with a screenwriter friend of mine, and we're, we're both in the process of deleting our old material, all of our old cartoons and things. I worked at a, I, I owned a cartoon studio an animation studio for many many years and i feel like i gotta hide all that crap and so does he and there are a lot of other people who have one foot in comedy or both feet in comedy who feel like they have to uh, uh clean up their past material or, or else get uh, uh steamrolled by this social media outrage machine do you what is your what is your take on all of this does it does it ever recede does that pendulum swing back the other way will there be an escape hatch where maybe we'll be a little bit more open to alternative ideas more open to i don't know comedy <laughs> is, that, is that ever going to yeah. happen sure uh i have a lot of thoughts on this we we, we talk about this on our serious xm show all the time yeah. um and i think it relates to politics as well you know mm-hmm. when when purity tests are going to kill us all yeah. uh yeah. The, the biggest problem one of the things that worries me the most uh, in, and on, on the left is this never-ending civil war between Bernie fans and Hillary fans. It's corrosive and stupid. Mm. And, you know, this whole notion of how could I ever vote for somebody I only agree with on 80% of issues. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so uh, people say, like, I'm not going to compromise my values. Um, and I'm like, every, I'm not going to choose the lesser of two evils. First off, not voting is choosing the greater of two evils. Yep. But everything in life as an adult is choosing the lesser of two evils, right? Everything as, I mean, picking what dessert you're going to have is picking the lesser of two evils. Adulthood is, in many cases, about compromise. And every artist has to make the choice, am I going to try to be a commercial artist? Mm-hmm. And when you make the choice to be a commercial artist, you are signing up, and it took me many years to learn this, but when you make the choice to be a commercial artist and have somebody else pay you, not necessarily your fans, if, if you can be completely pure and do exactly what you want to do and people pay you for creating what is pure for you, then that's great and you are one of the luckiest people in the world. Yeah. But if you're going to try to be a commercial artist, and that includes writers and columnists and reporters, what have you, you're going to have to compromise. And this is really shitty, but this is just the way it is. Um, In a corporate culture, corporations have one obligation, and it is not the common good. Their obligation is their bottom line, profits and their shareholders. Now, my wife is a VP at a, a tech company, and she was telling me long before Harvey Weinstein that all across the tech world, so many women were coming forward to talk about sexual harassment issues yeah and and she said it was all because of the uh grab by the pussy tape the access hollywood tape mm-hmm. my wife said this months and months before harvey weinstein happened before me too became the phenomenon it became my wife always was telling me like like she had never seen it before her colleagues had never seen it before after me too so many women had decided they were fed up this gets back to your original question i promise and and we're coming forward and Here's what's happening. 
you know, sometimes business is actually a leader out of greed. Business was a leader in the civil rights movement out of greed mm -hmm. when they realized that the Negro market was a way for them to make more money. Uh, when, when Ikea had a commercial with two gay men shopping for furniture together, that led to Budweiser having floats at every pride parade, right? Like, it's not because they're moral. It's because, okay, we want to make money off these people, so we will advance the culture and catch up with the morality. Yeah. So what happened was uh, companies have been packaging out VPs all over the place because here, here's the power of greed for social change. If you're a woman in a workplace and you complain about the VP grabbing you at the Christmas party and the company does nothing about it, and a year later another woman makes the same complaint and then finds out that a year ago there was this complaint and you did nothing, uh, then goodbye your company. Mm -hmm. Because uh, so, so companies were packaging, packaging people out. Because a company's sole responsibility is not the public good or morality, but their bottom line, their profits. If everyone can be replaced. Yeah. So in the chase of James Gunn, what happened to him was disgusting. And his jokes were disgusting. They weren't even really jokes. They were stupid tweets. Yeah. It's not the sort of thing I would ever do. But, you know, like, here's the Michael Richards lesson. Uh, I was on Michael Richards' sitcom, actually. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you about that. For NBC. Mm. Like, Michael Richards proved, like, you can, as a white person, you can do, if, if you're going to try to do material about the N-word that involves you saying the N-word, you should really write the material first <laughs> yeah. before you try it out on stage. Right. And James Gunn wrote some stupid shit on Twitter, mm -hmm. uh, ultimately harmless, but he makes wonderful, highly entertaining kids' movies. And I, I look, I think he should be, I think he should be rehired. I'm with Patton on that. Um, and I, I think Guardians of the Galaxy 1 is one of the top five, if not the best, comic book movie ever made. Oh, yeah. But they're kids' movies. Mm -hmm. And if you're Disney, and this guy who's made you a lot of money, it turns out, makes jokes about pedophilia and raping children, that means parents won't take their kids to see your kids' movie, and it hurts your bottom line. Yeah. They don't care about pedophilia and child rape. That's not their job. Their responsibility is to their shareholders. So this is why news sucks, right? Because, because it's not about the truth. It's about profit. And profit-driven news is why we're all so stupid. And so um, while I completely and, – and Cernovich is a horrible human being, uh, corrosively hypocritical. I've been the victim of this sort of thing in the past. Um, there was that guy in North Carolina who killed three Muslims a few years ago. And uh, Eric Erickson found out that this guy had retweeted a, a, a meme with one of my jokes slapped to one of my headshots. And Eric Erickson, who is a corrosively disgusting uh, fake Christian, yep. uh, posted this on Twitter that like, you know, like as if to imply an association with myself and a guy who killed Muslims. Never mind the fact that I'm Mr. Hippy Dippy Love and, and religious inclusion and uh, civilians shouldn't have assault weapons. Uh, they'll do it. They'll do anything because that's how hate works, right? Like crabs in a bucket. They're all like addicts and they all want their little dopamine squirt. Yeah. So, so, you know, Cernovich is a horrible guy. Uh, James Gunn is not a horrible guy. James Gunn did a horrible tweet and Disney not being a person, corporations are not people. Uh, people care about more than just profit, but corporations can't. That's not, that, that's not how they work. That's why the news sucks. So at the end of the day, and I'm sorry for the long, I, I gave you a thesis on this. No, that's okay. That's fine. But I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised by any of it because Disney cannot allow uh, a guy who makes jokes about pedophilia and raping children yeah. to uh, make a children's film. And it's wrong. He apologized. We can talk all day about how, you know, people can change, people grow. And I believe it. 
And I believe in redemption completely. And I don't think there's a single human being on earth, including Donald Trump, who's beyond redemption. Mm-hmm. But I understand how corporations work and how they have to work. And yeah. sometimes it can lead to good. Sometimes it can lead to bad. But it's always focused on the bottom line. And I, as I've gotten older, the more I've come to understand that, the more I understand how this particular capitalist society works. Yeah, yeah. I, I have found that, um, you know, when it comes to some of these cases, uh, you know, obviously with James Gunn and, and many similar cases, I think it's a, it's way, way overblown. And I'm really concerned about, uh, you know, losing a lot of great and, and creative voices in the world to uh, to these uh, online jihads and so forth. But at the same time, I feel like, I well, if you deal if you deal in controversial topics, don't be surprised when you actually stir up controversy. But I don't think that should extend to driving that person out of their career. I mean, Shel Silverstein, who wrote I agree. Easily I, agree. One of the... I totally agree. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with that 100%. But what I'm saying is, this is how it works. And it's fucked up and it's wrong. Yeah. And I know at some point, someone's going to find some terrible, unfunny stuff I tweeted nine years ago <laughs> and really, really try to hurt me with it. And, oh, yeah. and they have weaponized our own words against us. But that's the playing field we're on now. And that's, that's how, you know, that's how we take down bad guys, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent many, many years making really, really off color cartoons, and I fully expect at some point yeah. some of those cartoons are going to come out. But, you know, as I would say, I mean, Shel Silverstein used to do like nudie car- cartoons for Playboy magazine. I mean, one of the greatest children's authors of all time. I mean, maybe one of the greatest children's books, maybe in the top three or four uh, greatest children's books. That author actually was re- was drawing nude pictures for for Playboy. And if he had been if he yep. was still alive and he was public now i'm sure mike cernovich or the uh the the pc patrol on twitter would go after shell silverstein too and we would be robbed of that that legacy because of something that people did in their formative years years earlier and may have may not even have been uh, all that offensive in a modern context but i can see that oh, I, I agree and, yeah. and by the way and there's no absolute valued logic to this as well like everyone's talking about who which of these disgraced men in the me too movement has the best chance of coming back right yeah, like right you know, Matt Lauer is not coming back. I mean, you know, Bill Cosby's not coming back. Uh, um, Kevin Spacey probably won't come back for many years. Louis yeah. C.K., he'll probably come back, uh, not on TV with six shows at once, but uh, in, in clubs <laughs> and doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, it, it's, it's our umbrage is so selective and hypocritical. This year was the year that James Franco uh, wins the Golden Globe and doesn't get an Oscar nomination because these accusations about his behavior at his acting school came out the week of online voting for Oscar nominees. So he wins a Golden Globe, but because of these accusations of how he behaved towards women, he doesn't get a nomination. The man who won the Oscar, and who probably deserved it, uh, because I think we have to separate the artist from the man, but Gary Oldman, uh, his wife, his ex-wife, accused him of beating the hell out of her face with a phone receiver in front of the kids. Jesus, God. And, And so they wouldn't nominate James Franco for uh, acting inappropriately in his acting school, but they gave it to a guy who's also been accused of literal physical battery against the mother of his children. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying it's true, and I'm not saying that Gary Oldman's not one of the greatest artists in the world. I don't care about his political beliefs either. He's a great, great actor. Um, But, like, this is is how our umbrage goes. It's Mm -hmm. all about popularity, and it's amazing to see who survives. Mel Gibson gets to come back and make kids' films. Uh, and, and Oscar-nominated war movies, and then other people are disgraced forever. So it's it's sort of like 
we're a very, very uh, inconsistent race of monkeys. And, um, <laughs> you, you know, look no further than the James Franco-Gary uh, Oldman Oscar race to see how there's just so much hypocrisy about all yeah, of it. And, yeah. and again, uh, you know, because I actually believe that Jesus talk, uh, I believe that, and all the great religions say this, Islam says this, that sometimes you have to sink really low before you can rise again. And I don't believe that any of us, any of us, deserve to have our life judged in totality based on the worst thing we ever did. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, like Jesus, I oppose capital punishment. Yeah. But, um, you, you know, like, I don't think Me Too is a witch hunt. Uh, no. And I, I think that, you know, I'm really inspired to see that, to me, it amazes me that men get away with behaving like this. I, I had to develop a sense of humor to get girls to talk to me. <laughs> I wish I'd known I could have just been a corrosive pig. Um, <laughs> So, you know, it, it, it's all over the place, but I, I do think that James Gunn will still be hired. He will still work. Yeah. I don't think the, the, uh, the, the campaign to get him reinstated is going to be effective with Disney. I, I, I just don't see how Disney could do it, seeing how they operate. I mean, if J.J. Abrams had done something like that, they'd fire him from Star Wars. They would. You know yeah, they, they would. would. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that he will still work, and he'll probably just do, you know, grown-up comedies and action films, and he'll still have a career because... You know, it's like it's like uh, a number of African American uh, friends and, and colleagues have told me about the N word. It's what I call CIA: context, intent, and audience. Yeah. Clearly, he was not being pro pedophilia in those tweets, and I do think that context matters more than the words that are used in certain contexts. Well, and also there's a, a gigantic difference between uh, Me Too, sexual assault, and then also making dick and fart jokes on, on Twitter. There's a, a, a vast chasm between those two offenses and, and how they should be treated. And I hope eventually we're going to get to this point where there is that distinction again, where we're not grouping uh, people who committed sexual assault, serially so in the cases of like Bill Cosby, versus uh, someone like James Gunn who just made some unfortunate jokes on Twitter. I, I hope that we can see the yeah. difference between those things eventually and once fairness, this all sorts I, I, out. I, I, and I don't think anyone's doing that. Like, I mean, I don't think anyone is putting, you know, 92-year-old George H.W. Bush grabbing women spots at photo ops on the same level as Harvey Weinstein. Right. Uh, it's incredibly disgusting that George Bush made it to his 90s and still thinks he can get away with that. That is every kind of privilege, uh, white, male, rich uh, in action. But uh, I think most of us agree that it's not on the same level. Let me, you know, I know we're running out of time here. We've been uh, talking for about an hour, and I want to let you get back because you actually have your show to do uh, this afternoon. Yeah, um, I've actually got to hop on a bike and bike in the rain down to uh, Sirius XM Studios. It's, this has been delightful. I want people in Radio Land to know uh, I've been walking back and forth in Podcast Land. I've been walking back and forth on my street in Manhattan having this conversation in like a really nice light summer rain. <laughs> you, you make me feel like a Febreze commercial, Bob. Tuska. Thank you. Well, t- the last thing I want to ask you, tell me about Henry. Uh, is he? Do you think he's leaning toward his dad's work or is, is he aware of everything that's going on in the world right now? I can't imagine that he wouldn't be. I'm, <laughs> I imagine he's, Henry is at the point now where stop talking about Trump, dad. Is that is that the case? Uh, uh, oh, God, that's funny. Yeah. Um, well, Henry, Henry is a uh, Henry Jack is named after Henry Miller and my father, because I thought that would cover the entire oh. range of male experience. And I never thought I was going to have a kid. Um, I, I, you know, my parents took a vow to never have children uh, for spiritual reasons. And mm. uh, we took a vow to never have children for bohemian reasons. <laughs> and then I reached a point where, like, everybody in my life was dying. And my, my dad died. And 
my mom had this really rare uh, degenerative disease that took years to get a diagnosis and one knew what was wrong with her. And my wife's grandmother died. My aunt who helped raise me died. My best friend killed herself. Both of our cats died. All of this happened in a span of 18 months. And it sort of felt like I needed to do something radical in the gears of my life to, to change things. And so uh, we had this child as a, as a way of, you know, saying, take that uh, uh, progression of events. We're going mm-hmm. to shake it up even more. <laughs> and it, it's, it's strange. You know, people are, I know a lot of people who are scared to raise kids during a time like this. But I think this is a time when, you know, we need to raise righteous uh, pro-LGBT, sex-positive, feminist, all the good stuff, woke, uh, <laughs> white men more than ever. Um, you know, he, he knows Trump's a bad guy. He knows we don't go to the Central Park Carousel anymore because Trump's horrible feces name is slapped all over it. Oh, no. Uh, his favorite president is uh, Bronco Obama. Bronco Obama <laughs> is uh, his favorite rodeo star and president. Um, you know, he comes in and sees me, and he, he'll say, like I said earlier, he'll say, like, don't get angry when he, if, if uh, I'm losing my composure on social media. And, uh, you know, I'm not allowed to be a negative dick because of him. And so mm. in that sense, he's helping me be a better version of myself during a worse version of America. And, and, and that's sort of, I guess, the microcosm of what I see in the country, that so much good is already coming from this, from, from the people that, you know, I saw at the Women's March in D.C. inauguration weekend, or when I, I took my son to, uh, I took my son to the, 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 the uh, gun, you know, march in New York. I took him to the anti-Muslim ban march in Battery Park. Mm-hmm. You see these TV newsreaders becoming journalists. You see the judicial branch giving us all a real civics lesson in, in, in the balance of powers in this country. There's, there's so much good coming from all this awful that, like the AIDS crisis, I, I have to be mindful of it and, and realize, yes, horrible things are going to happen. It's part of the deal. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do about it? You know, we can't control what happens to us. We can only control how we respond to it, mm-hmm. uh, both in, in politics and in life. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's funny because he's, he's really into Star Wars, uh, the Bible, and the Beatles. So I know he's my kid. Um, <laughs> I was actually, just going to say. He said to me, he, he, he'll, like, he'll walk in, you know, like, like David Crosby came over to my, my apartment to, for Frank Connors' birthday party. <laughs> right. And, and he walks into David Crosby and he just goes, John and George are dead. Paul and Ringo are alive. And he walks away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Unbelievable. You know, but I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this. Like, like, and he also said to me, uh, uh, Jesus turned water into wine using the force. And I couldn't correct him. Um, so I'm, I'm getting comedy. I'm getting material out of him, which is what matters. He, he had a flyer he brought home from school for, for, for Black History Month. And I said, oh, Henry, your school's doing so many good things for Black History Month. And he said to me, uh, it's also called African-American dad. And I thought, wow, I'm raising a liberal soul. It's pure social reproduction. But I'll tell you, uh, the other day I took him to the Natural History Museum. And on the way out, uh, somehow we were talking about the concept of heaven. And, um, and I said, you know, grandma's in heaven. And, you know, he, he's not going to remember my mother. They got to meet and he never knew my dad. My dad died. He was conceived on the first Father's Day after my dad died. So yeah. he, was, he was born of sorrow and, and born of joy. And and I said, you know, they're in heaven. And I mean, to me, heaven is like whatever you want to define it as being. Sure. Uh, and and, um, and I, I have no problem teaching children that sort of basic stuff. I, I think it's, it's, it's nice and sweet and we're, we're learning positivity. And, right. And he wanted to know who else was in heaven. And he's like, you know, is Jimmy in heaven? That was my old cat named after Bob Dylan. I'm like, yeah, Jimmy's in heaven. I believe that. And he said, uh, Jackie Robinson? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, is Gandhi in heaven? I'm like, okay, yeah, let's play this. And he's like, I said, you know, Martin Luther King is in heaven. 
And he said, is George Harrison in heaven? And I said, yeah, he's in heaven too. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and we just walked a little away. And then he looked at me and he goes, Carrie Fisher. <laughs> and I had no idea he knew who Carrie Fisher was or wow. that she had died. He knows Star Wars, but I had no idea that he knew. And I'll tell you, my son thinking that, you know, knowing that Carrie Fisher is in heaven gave me all the inspiration I needed to get through the rest of the week. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I mean, Jesus, what a great story. And so I, and I love how, uh, he's, he's conflating people like MLK, Gandhi and George Harrison, that combination. Oh, and then, then of course, Carrie Fisher. I love the combination there. Uh, the really important well, names too. in I mean, history. They're, they're yeah. all people who had, uh, personal failings, no doubt, but they're all people who, uh, made the world better than they found it. And that's what we're called to do. Yeah. You can either make it better for just your little tribe, or you can go out there, and even if it's selfish, I mean, you can just make make great art, give a performance mm -hmm. that right. people admire, do activism that you know will help someone you'll never meet. I mean, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's what we're here to do, right? And, yeah. and so most of us will never get credit for our efforts, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't get out there and, and do it. We only have this brief whisper of time, and what are we going to make of it? Well, you said it, man. Well, thank you so much for your time, John. I really, really appreciate it. I can't wait to... Uh... Uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have a lot more dick jokes next time. This ah! is preachy as fuck, so thank you very much okay, for having Okay, yes, me. please. Next time, come equipped with more dick jokes. Make that your homework assignment. I shall. <laughs> All right, my friend. I'll, I'll talk to you on Monday. Thank you so much. that podcast i hope you'll check out my podcast i want to be your muslim friend with me dean obidala because i want to be your mbff each week where i'm going to make you laugh while making you smarter right here on the sexy liberal podcast network